Prepare to unlock your potential and conquer the business realm with Boss Uncaged. Join S.A. Grant, a seasoned entrepreneur, digital marketing expert, and branding specialist as he delves into exclusive interviews, strategies, and success stories from founders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and executives. Guiding you from overcoming challenges to dominating diverse media platforms, Boss Uncaged is your ultimate source for business and entrepreneurial insights. Subscribe, like, and share now to elevate your business game where the spirit of the uncaged boss runs free. Meet the visionary behind the Boss Uncaged Educational Network and Omnimedia, the one and only boss beast, S.A. Grant. All right, welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today I have an opportunity that I'm in Tokyo, Japan with Lance. Now, you know, everyone that I'm, I do interviews with, I like to give a particular nickname. So this this guy, this man, this this living legend has been in, in the land of the rising sun for 50 years or so, right? So I'm going to have to, uh, you know, name him the Samurai Boss, without doubt. So Lance, the floor is yours. I want you to tell audience a little bit more about you and what would you like to talk about today? Whatever you want to ask me about, because I feel mm. like I'm always on stage Mm. For one thing, because I'm doing this podcast, so I've tried to pull back some because I've been in positions of being over the American Chamber and then also being over attack, mm. two positions that I love and they were really, really good. And having been in the military, on the, in the honor guard in the military, mm. I've always been on show. Hmm. So okay, so I mean, being that you said that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of unmask that, right? I'm gonna pull back <laughs> this onion layers a little bit. I want you to kind of go back, and it was on Facebook. There was a picture of your dad black and white, and he just turned 30. And you had this byline talking about like, your mom threw a surprise party for him, and that was the moment that he, he should have known that he married the right person. What did that picture mean to you? It was a particular picture that you posed. What did that picture mean to you? It was actually a picture that my father wouldn't have put up, but my mother wanted me to put up. She oh. wouldn't, now I shouldn't say, she didn't want me to put it up, however. I knew it meant a lot to her because oh. she put a lot of time into it, and mm -hmm. it kind of some summarized the way my father was. He didn't like to have anything too extravagant. Mm. He's right beside a piano and he has all the gifts above there. And I think he really, it disappointed my mother because she put a lot of time into it. But that was the way he was. But he's a very handsome man. Mm. And I think that's what she saw. Mm. And very photogenic. Whenever you took a picture of him, he looked good. <laughs> up until his last days, up until the 70s when he was 72. But that's how I saw that. And it, it, a good man, however, he wasn't good with accepting or receiving things. Mm. Mm. So I think that's, that's a very interesting point because I get, if someone's watching this video right now, right, looking at you, looking at your stature, kind of you're very parallel to your dad's age, right? He died at 72. So I want you to kind of allude to how old are you? I'm just going to ask a, it. I'm 71. Yeah. Okay. So you, 71 October 6th. Yeah. So it's a... A week, two weeks from now. So he says it so nonchalantly. Seventy-one. This, this is your camera too, by the way, so you know. Gotcha. That's when you when you for you talking to your people, that and this one both. So I want you to kind of think about this from the standpoint of he says that he is seventy-one, right? He looks like he's forty something, like literally, right? I mean, come on now. So in that journey, I think there was another picture with you and your younger sister Linda, right? And. It was kind of another black and white picture. So I want you to kind of talk about like your upbringing. You're saying that your dad wasn't into, into the, the limelight per se. Right. Your sister came into the picture. What kind of household did you grow up in? Now, there's something I have to say to everyone about Ese. Ese? Ese. 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 See that thing on something simple like that? Is that 
you do do your homework. And you told me that ahead of time because you have that kind of mind. And you must have been raised that way too, I think. It starts at an early age when people start saying, oh, you have a good memory or whatever. And you start to identify with things that you're being told about yourself that you like. My father always told me that people liked me. Mm. And I think I vibrate that way so that people do. I, I think 100%. 100%. The memory thing, I was never, I was also taught to believe I wasn't smart. Hmm. And I've been fighting that even up till now, hmm. my whole life. You're not smart. You're not that smart. They wouldn't say it. They would demonstrate it in other ways. Hmm. But my father never said that to me. That yeah. came from other people in my family. But it, hmm. I did not That's like that. So, well, man, I think you've proved that wrong. I mean, yesterday we had a conversation and I'm kind of building a building box in my head mm -hmm. of the things that you said. Kind of your engineering aspect to who you are. I mean, by default, kind of coming into building and developing things. You, I think you said you'd put together like a motorcycle and you I kind of... I used to do that all the time. Yeah. My father allowed me to. I take the thing completely apart. Look at the manual. I remember doing my Honda when I took that completely apart. I took 175 Honda, mm. 175 horse, I mean, CC Honda, took it completely apart, put it all the way back together, started it, rode it, and it stopped. Hmm. Came back, realized I'd missed one thing. There are jets of oil that come up mm -hmm. through the gaskets. I had put glue around that mm. and covered up the jets, and it made the, the piston singe because mm. it got hot and didn't have any oil around it. <laughs> but I did everything on my own, and my father would come back, and he'd watch me and go, oh, you something else. That would make me feel so good. He'd watch me. Mm. And he, I just bought the brand. It was brand new. Mm. And I'd just take it apart because I knew I could do that. And I'd have to be smart. and have to read. I could look at the diagram and tell what it took to put it back. I put everything in there. I laid everything mm. out on the ground. I could do that. So you don't think that's, that's a gift of intelligence considering that, that everyone could do that? I realized when I got in the service that I was hmm. really smart. Hmm. I was above average. I knew that. And then when people start talking about EQ, men's equality when it comes to EQ. Hmm. Hmm. You know? But see, you belong men's when it comes to IQ. And I think you also have the EQ going for you too. <clears throat> because when you talked about my little sister, Linda, how, who looks back that far into somebody's past? Linda's my first sister, and then I have another sister after her, Valerie, who was born the same day, two years after. My mother said that, planned that. But anyway, <laughs> planned parenting before it was planned parenting. When I think about that picture, where she was in my lap, and her and I were there, that was going to be a good picture. And that was in our house in 29, 2822 Halldale Avenue, mm -hmm. which we've since sold. And I remember taking that picture and her being in my lap, and it was just her and I. And it's interesting. Valerie is very, I mean, Linda is very much like my father, very quiet, more reserved, but can be the life of the party if she's with her friends. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm very reserved. Valerie can be, but we can also be the life of the party. But I think it's, we force ourselves to be. So I want you to like, like now you're in that memory, right? Like you mm -hmm. remember you're vivid, right? So like the next question is kind of like growing up in, in California. And I want you to kind of think back to the moment. I think it was 1952. It was a picture and you were on like a, a jumping board getting ready to jump into a pool. Okay, it wasn't 52. That's when I was born in 1952. But it was in 1950, I'd say. that I was about six years old. My mother had me. Mm. That's, in my, that's in San Bernardino, actually. I had to be seven years old, so it was probably 1959. 1959. Okay, I was seven years old. Okay. I could already swim, but I was a f fearful of the deep end mm. because I'd seen someone almost drowned. Mm-hmm. My grandmother had a pool, and my mother said, if you want to swim in there, you have to jump in the deep end. So I'm standing up there like this, 
my little skinny legs scared yeah. to death. But I had to jump in and swim from the deep end to the shallow end. Then she let me swim back and forth, back and forth, the short distance mm -hmm. in the shallow end. But she said, you cannot do this unless you jump in the deep end. Huh. I had nightmares about jumping in that deep end. Huh. I'd jump on the way down and there'd be no water <laughs> or something like that. And I never dreamt of drown, drowning. I always thought something would happen. But I would jump and get across my little skinny arms and legs, and I'd be there, and she'd say, okay, and I could swim. And I always thought that was cruel hmm. because she wasn't there. She wasn't dressed to protect me, nothing. She was in a dress, and I knew she was going to jump in in a dress hmm. if something happened. So yeah. I had to make it. Hmm. But, yeah, that was at my grandmother's house. So let's just pull that back for a minute, okay. right? So <laughs> thinking of that time frame, considering the location that you grew up, how many other people of your background had access to pools like that? I didn't realize that my family was pretty well off mm. until I got older. And, and also a lot of things, this is something else used to happen in school. Born and raised in L.A. at White Memorial Hospital, downtown L.A. The teachers in almost every grade, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, would always say, where are you from? Mm. And the kids say, Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas. I'd say, L.A. She'd say, where are you really from, Lance? Huh. I'd say, L.A. And some kids say, no, Alabama. And I'd say, no, I'm from Los Angeles. I was and I'd doubt myself. Mm. And I wouldn't argue back. Mm -hmm. She'd say, no, you're not. And she'd go to the next person. Hmm. I'm from Los Angeles, born and raised there. You know, my father's from Louisiana, but I don't think I really knew that then. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that early age. They hadn't filled me in or I hadn't, I wasn't yeah. articulate enough to be able to ask. Well, let's talk about when you went to, you went to the military like around 19, right? 19, I was so drafted. I want you to think about like, why did you, considering that you, you, were, you lived in a well-off family, considering right. for the time frame, potentially you didn't have to go into the military. Yes, I did. Were you drafted? Yes, I was drafted. Okay, but you, couldn't you kind of go into college and get away nope. with that? my brother did. I have a brother who's five years older. So he had college deferments. Mm. But when I came in, they stopped all that. There was no college deferment. So I got the notice. I didn't tell my father. I go to the recruiting service, I mean recruiting office, and I look around and I see the Marines. And I, that wasn't even considered because you knew they were going to be in the thick of Front everything. Line. Yeah. The Army, you know, my father had been in it. Guy had a few too many ribbons and too many stripes. Mm. Nah. The Marine, the Navy, I thought about it because they had bell bottoms. They had that flap in mm. the back. The cat looks tight and slim. Oh, it looked good. But I figured when they came into port, mm. they didn't just get to go out and have a good time. Mm. Somebody had to clean those ships and do something. Yep. So I said, yeah. There was one branch of the service, the Air Force, where this guy's standing in almost looking like a regular blue suit. He had a couple of stripes, not that many ribbons. Mm. And he's standing there and not... Anxious for me to come in. Didn't even look like he cared if I came in. Hmm. So I said, what do I have to do if I want to join the Air Force? He said, get in that line over there. Because they had a line wrapped around the recruiting office for the testing they had to get in. That's the only branch you had to test to get in. Hmm. So I got in there almost knowing I wouldn't be able to get in. Because hmm. there's too many guys, 25 guys. So I'm saying, please, 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 whatever. And I wasn't really religious. I've always been more spiritual, even though I went to a Catholic school for a little while. And of the 25 guys, two of us got in. Huh. He says, Lance Lee, and I, I thought it was a joke, but these other guys who look smarter than me, just looked smarter than mm -hmm. me, I figured would get in. I joked with everybody and said they were derelicts. No, everybody looked like they really wanted to go into the Air Force. But only two of us got in. So it, what it sounds like, it's like you had a confliction with yourself from an early age, but which made you an overachiever. Well, so I'm not done. 
But I'm saying you're not. That's what I'm saying. You're overachiever, period, right? I mean, like, we're, we're building up to your story. We haven't even got to the climax yet, right? Yeah. So, 19, then you, again, in that journey, somehow, some way, I guess you get stationed in Japan. Right. Actually, putting in for Vietnam, I got stationed in Japan. Because well. I had already been, I'd been stationed in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. which was outside, it was still within the continental United States. Mm-hmm. So, I'm in Puerto Rico for a year and a month. That was interesting. And I was 19 when I was there. Then I come to Louisiana, which I had never been in the South, and not far from where my father was born. His sister still lived there. The store they had was still, I could see where they had the store there. They were the neighborhood store. And I can imagine probably why my fa- my grandfather was taken out of the picture real quick, because he's the neighborhood store. Everybody else had to go to work. So anyway, and he's a good-looking man. <laughs> so anyway, and I have a feeling a lot of my father's cousins aren't his cousins. Mm. That's definitely interesting. I think they're his, you know, half brothers and sisters that, that are around yeah. there. That name, just think of the time. Hundred percent, hundred percent. He's there, and these women had to go to the store, and I just figured that they, they couldn't say how he left. I don't even know how my great grand, how my grandfather left, but he's not here. Huh. But my grandmother, she died early because the women on the lee side from cancer died early. In my, you know, in my family, we've seen that. But they haven't, luckily they haven't gone, but I have a sister that's had it, but she's complete remission. She's done very well. So So, what did you do in the Air Force? I was a carpenter. I tell people, it depends on how I tell you the story, because I was very, very fortunate to learn how to sell. I'll usually tell people I had the same job that Jesus Christ had. And playing say, playing into the religious side. They think, huh? they think, they think well, you, you ministered to people or something? <laughs> I said, no, I was a carpenter. So was he, because his father was a carpenter. And that's that only because the orders I got hmm. were redlined. Two of us, okay, there were three real good jobs that people got. I mean, orders that you knew the Air Force was going to spend a lot of money on you. One guy that we thought should have been kicked out a long time ago because he would always push our drill instructor just to the point, then he stopped. I thought this guy was dumb, but his IQ was the highest. His orders were for cryptology, which is intelligent. So he got that. The next best orders were me and Abernathy, in-flight refueling. We were supposed to be on the back of 135s, the fuel thing, taking that in. And I said, now I'm happy for being in the Air Force because I'm going to take that to where I'm going to become a pilot. Because you get flight time and stuff, you know. And they're going to train you for everything. Survival, they're going to put millions of dollars in you. So I was so happy. They have to do a black background check, and I'm sure they did with me, and I had been incarcerated once for n- something I did not do, for being with the wrong guy. It was a traffic ticket. He had pipes in his car, and the police stopped. I was 18 years old. I shouldn't have gone in, mm-hmm. but they took us in, and I stayed in because when I called my father and said, Dad, guess where I am? He said, riding your motorcycle? I said, no. He said, at a party? I said, you know I don't go to parties. He said, where are you? I said, I'm in jail. And he said, you want me to come and get you? I said, you haven't even asked me what I did. You know what my father said? What did he say? I know you didn't do anything. So you want me to come and get you? I thought the love this man has for me, no. He just knew his son. I hadn't done anything. Anyway, to make a long story short, they they were supposed to have expunged the records, which they did not do. And I don't think they ever do, unless you really have big money, and then they just stop people from seeing it. But they're still there. Yeah. That's what we do as human beings. We want to know what other people are doing. So our intelligence services or whatever. But anyway, I think that's what they saw, and they couldn't take a risk because they didn't want to go further. And that's why they, both me and this other guy, unfortunately, were redlined. Huh. So then they said, look, you can get anything in jet engines or in civil engineering. 
And I was so bitter at that time, after sending my orders to my father and to everyone I could think of, telling them, look, at I'm going to be an in-flight refueler. I said, okay, I want something that can be used on the outside. So I said, plumbing, carpentry. But I think even after that, you still kind of went back to for your love of the mechanic side, right? I mean, did well, you, something I knew yeah. I could do those. I mean, I was good because and when I when I grew up, you had you had automotive shop, you had electric shop, you had wood shop, you had wood shop, and I did all of those, and I was good in all of those mm-hmm. because it didn't require me to read, which I didn't learn to do until later. Really? That's, listen, man, I'm telling you, it was not nice. So essentially, you had through osmosis, you had the capabilities of, of reading engines. Because I mean, didn't you buy your first pickup truck with a t- two cycle little black? <laughs> yeah, that was here in Japan. Hmm. <laughs> Daihatsu. I bought that when I came here because I didn't want to be like anyone else. Hmm. The only reason why I didn't want to get a Mustang when Mustangs would be in all the kids in school got a Mustangs. I didn't want a car. I bought a motorcycle. I don't want to do what everyone else has. Well, I want to go the, they run this way, I'm going to run the other way. I, don't, yeah. I didn't grow a fro right away because everyone had a fro. I kept a flat top. Mm-hmm. They called me bullet head. The funny, the funny thing about that is like, I think it was another picture with you when you were like a baby and your comment was like, I came out with a full set of hair. I did. I did. I did. And my father said, if it doesn't get curly soon, I'm going to know something. <laughs> it was all way in my head. So I want you to think about this next question, right? From, from the standpoint of who you are today. If you can kind of think about three to five words to define you, what would those three to five words be? Hmm. First thing I thought was loyal, strong, creative, compassionate. And what else would I say? Hmm. I don't know. I need five words. You said five words. Three to five. Adventurous. That's why you like riding those triumphs. Oh, no. Give it to me. Every time I'm on the height, I, I like seeing things from different areas. Mm-hmm. And I think I've astral projected once but I didn't do it from the sky. I just was in the place I wanted to be in. And I think it was verified. I did it with a cousin of mine hmm. and I haven't done it since because the guy gave me a book on it and he was so upset and I could verify that I actually did that. I was actually where I said I'd be. And she didn't know I was going to do it. Hmm. So when did you go? I went to San Bernardino and I saw my cousin Debbie, who was my closest cousin at the time. And I have to remember it vividly. I don't remember it vividly, but I went there and I, she wrote me, without me saying anything to her, Lance, I had the strong feeling that you were here at such and such and such and such. And I hadn't said anything to her. And I went, those were letters were in. Because I was there. I watched her moving around. Mm-hmm. And I was there. So but people, we do, I think all of us do all these things all the time, but we don't give any credibility to it because normal society is fearful of things like that. 100%. Right? The only reason why we take that phone and go like this and believe that we're talking to someone we have no wires and stuff is because we've developed the, the mechanisms and stuff and shown people so they believe that's possible, mm-hmm. that we're doing it. But we're still going over stuff you can't see. We didn't do that with our minds. Mm-hmm. We do it all the time. We don't think about it. We bring things to us. You're here because of how I'm thinking. I'm here because of how you think. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be here otherwise. 100%. 100%. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to try to talk about, I want to change the angle of this, right? Okay. So we're building up to where you came from, kind of who you are, where you are right now. I want you to kind of think about this next question from the standpoint of where you're going. Because again, we're going to skip the middle because like, I think that's the real meat and potatoes of who you are. But again, you're saying you're 71 years old, you don't look it and you don't see that, that time clock. Where ideally would you like things to be maybe 10 years from now? Yeah, right. that's a good, that's a good. Yeah, I'll be 81, 10 years from now. <laughs> the first thing I think about is like being in a drone. I don't know if these, these drone-like 
craft are going to be available by then, but they may be. But I would like to be going over the horizon here in one of those hmm. from building to building or just saying, okay, I'm going to be there. And we get up there and let's go over there because I want to show you something hmm. there. That type of thing. You know, traveling with family and other people, other places in the world, but at the highest level. Hmm. I don't want to come in to it. I've done enough of that. I don't want to be on, down there. I want to. <laughs> I want to fly over into the palace. Mm -hmm. I want to be over there and sit down there and experience that because I haven't experienced a lot of that yet. I want to experience that. I want to be around the toys that we've created as human beings. Every single one that we have, I want to have a that should say all of them, but a lot of them I want to enjoy. And there's areas that I don't want to go into because I know we have capabilities that I'd rather not really know that they really do exist because it can make you very paranoid. I know that we have satellites that even through these clouds could probably see me tell you how many moles I have on my mm. hand with accuracy mm. and listen to what I'm saying right now with accuracy or through the instruments I have. I know that, but I don't want to know it. There's things I've learned just through life. I don't want to know. I'm well, content really, in my ignorance. I think everything that you said, I mean, still goes back to you being an overachiever, right? So I want to kind of talk about like the levels of achievement that you've made. Like there were those pictures with you shaking hands, pretty much Michael Jackson, like you guys are hugged, right? right. You had opportunity to, to meet Bill Clinton and all of that is kind of stemming from you becoming a president in an environment that you would not think someone of like, your, who you are would be in this environment and have that type of leadership. So I want you to talk about like, how did you become the president of where we are? I want you to talk about where we are right now. Like This is a Tokyo American Club. It's, it's a private facility for expats hmm. and alike people of means, basically. There's an entry fee to get into the club. We have about 4,000 members. Don't quote me on that, because it could be 5,000 now, but mm -hmm. I think it's 4,000 members. And that means we have about 16 to 17,000 people that have access to this facility. Throughout the world, we have about 6,000 members, because you can be an overseas member mm -hmm. and not pay and still have access to the club when you come. I came to know about this club when I was a teacher at the American School. Mm -hmm. I taught at the American School, which is probably the largest by finance, if nothing else, international school in Japan. Mm -hmm. And it's in the outskirts of Tokyo. So teaching there three years physical education and being the first black male teacher they ever had gave me exposure. And being a gymnast, mm -hmm. that's another area that people don't associate with people of color when I first came or ever at that time. Now with, with Biles and other people, they realized they're black gymnasts, but they weren't when mm -hmm. I was growing up. You had a few. There was a guy named by the name of Kanadi Allen when I was young that we looked up at because he was a black gymnast. But he was one of the type of black gymnasts at the time that had assimilated to the white society, mm -hmm. so he didn't sound black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he didn't. I don't think he wanted to be around too many blacks. I don't know him, so that could be unfair. Mm -hmm. He may have wanted to be. I don't know the guy at all. Mm -hmm. But I know he inspired me, just the fact that I saw someone look like me in that sport. So I teach in the American school. I heard the kids talking about the American club, the American club. I wanted to go see what it was. So I got on one of the buses with them. It came here. I looked around and I said, you could smell the money. I just said, what in the world? This is real? These kids, and they, it's like it's nothing to them. What about the American club? They come in here and get something to eat and stuff. So I walked around as if, well, by that time, I'd already been trained by a black financial firm. Mm -hmm. So I knew me. And I knew how to handle myself. My hair was already short, again, because I'd grown a fro for a while after I got out of the service. Then I cut it short, and I wanted to sell. 
I want to get into investments and learn how to deal with money should I ever get any. And these guys showed us how. But it was a slow lane way of doing it unless you made it through your commissions dealing mm-hmm. with people there. It's not the fast way to do it. So they didn't teach us how to produce anything. But they did teach me how to develop my EQ. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So I walk into the club. No one questioned me. And I walked around like no one should question me. And I look up and I see a picture of presidents. And I'm not even a member yet. And they were all white guys. And I said, hmm, I'm going to be the first black president this club ever has. And I wasn't even a member yet. And I was half playing, but I wasn't really playing. Hmm. I didn't know how. And I didn't write it on a piece of paper or make any real detailed plan on how I was going to become a member. I really didn't think about it. And I got lazy. So I came here and started my program, my gymnastics program here, first of all. And that was by selling the recreation director. I came here every weekend to see if anything was going on, nothing was going on. So I saw the room I wanted to use, and it was always lit. So I come to the director, and I said, I have a proposition for you. And he said, what is it? And I said, are those rooms always lit downstairs? He said, for the most part. And I said, well, if I can show you how you can make one yen more than you're making right now on those rooms, would you be interested? He said, sure. I said, okay, I have a gymnastics program, but the rest was history. And also the pay scheme became history because they said, we won't give you what I wanted. They said, we'll make it 50-50 since we advertise and it's all our own people and you have a... I said, fair, I'll do that for three months. After that, we have to renegotiate because I'd learned how to sell. I knew how to get what I wanted to get. And I knew that I'd have to do it by working through people. The American school, when I taught there, I taught there for three years. They wanted me to stay on, but they were already paying me. I can't say what they were paying me, but I had to write non-disclosures because of what they were paying me. But I was the only guy there getting that. The other schools, I formed my own company, so they didn't hire me. They hired my company, Mm -hmm. but they made sure I was a part of that contract. I had to come in. Good. Because people will pay a company more than than they'll pay an individual. So that's how I had to set up. So after having my program here and having the largest program they had here and having instructors teaching it, so I didn't come every weekend because I would get high school students to teach for me and I would come here or go to another location or something. One day, the general manager decided to cut my classes in half. He said, it's too much. Little did anyone else know, he had a daughter that wanted to have a program like mine. So I said, okay, I'm not going to provide any competition for you. You don't have to worry about me because I'm not going to cut my classes. And he said, oh, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. You can have them all. I'm leaving. I'm going to cut half of my classes. Yeah, I'm done. So I left and became a member. (laughs) You don't cut half of my classes. So it put him in a whole different situation, Hmm. right? But I didn't have my program here. Then fast forward about It wasn't that far, maybe a year. The new director wanted to have my program here and asked me if I could have my people come here in the club's name. And I said, well, can Pepsi-Cola come here in Coca-Cola's name? No, it has to be IGC. So they took IGC, but I had to leave the room of governors because I was a governor by that time too. They convinced me to get onto the board. And which I avoided, like the plague. I wasn't ready for that. I thought I'd be ready once I was really phenomenally wealthy. That's what was my criteria. Mm. Then I'd get on the board. No, they wanted me on. So I got on and I was quiet. So my words had power. And I realized it because whenever I spoke, everyone would, <laughs> what's he going to say? Because they'd never heard a black man speak on the board. There was never a black man on the board. Mm. <laughs> so it was interesting. 
<laughs> it was interesting. So I enjoyed the dynamics. And they had to recondition themselves because the jokes they told and the things they said, they had to change. They'd done it for women because women had already gotten on. Yeah. But they hadn't done it for other ethnicities, hmm. particularly black. So when I came on, there were a couple of slip-ups. And I'd just look, and they would turn red, beat red, and say, well, no, no, I don't mean, not you, Lance. Because oh. I was I somewhat militant in a way. I didn't like ethnic jokes unless I'm the one telling them. <laughs> I was, it, it was just really, I didn't play that. And there was another guy that got on, another black guy got on, who was a retired Air Force pilot, jet pilot. Considering your history. This brother's no joke. Pete Johnson, shout out to Pete Johnson. But he had also assimilated, and he explained to me why. And he said, Lance, flying those F-14s, all it would take is a screw in one of the engines, and I'd be down, and nobody could say who did it. I had to trust them. I said, well, I had a different respect for him. He said, I had to trust them. But don't think for a moment if they got off. But his limits of tolerance were much greater than mine. Mm -hmm. So he would tolerate a lot more. Those weren't worth him getting all upset and hot, hot about or joke or someone touched him or whatever. But I, no, don't you? What would you? My mother, what? You know, <laughs> so I was that still there. So he taught me a different level huh. of tolerance that I had never afforded myself. And I was still reactive. Huh. So know? I, I want to think about this from, from a standpoint, like strategy wise, the goal is to always have longevity, right? And starting with a younger generation kind of builds up to when they get older than their kids and so forth and so forth. Did you ever stop to think that by going through their kids in gymnastics, that that would lead you to the opportunity to where you are right now? No. Until I started realizing that was the case. And that's the conversion, I, right? Right. I had never thought that the fact that their kids, their admiration for me and what they learned from me hmm. would convert into those people saying, I want him to be the one that leads us. I didn't think of that. And that was something. I remember, I do remember doing this with their kids. I remember sitting down at the American school and I had over 100 kids in the room and I, con I had conditioned all of them to do exactly what I wanted to do. So I said, get up in lines by grades. And they went boom, 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 boom. And they all knew what line to get into. And I said, now I'm going to have you go to your equipment in the same group. And I want the older kids to work with the younger kids and do it in a nice way. I had teachers walk in there watching the way I worked with these kids sitting on the stage watching them do it and just oh. saying a few things verbally because I knew which kids would be a little rowdy and would get a little, but I, it's still easy to control. Oh. I'd set all this up. It was so easy. I didn't want the teachers to come in because they would start holding them. You don't need to touch my kids. They're learning more without our interaction than they would with us interacting with them because oh. what we tend to do is put what we think they need in there. They know what they need. Let them do it. Oh. Let them do it. I but think, I'm getting paid for doing yeah, all this now. I'm yeah. feeling a little guilty, too, because they want to see you getting up there and doing something. That's what people tend to do. I told the principal who would come, when he retired, he only came back to Japan so to visit with me. A man that never got married called me just before he was, he was going into an operation and knew he may not make it out of it. He said, Lance, I just wanted to say, it's been a pleasure knowing you and da-da-da. Mr. Collins, and he's the one that gave me the job, knowing I didn't have a teaching degree. So where does the aspect of you, essentially the symbolism of you being an angel, come into play? Me being an angel? Being an angel. An angel. Come into play. 
Because <clears throat> I mean, like again, using my memory, there was right. a picture with you. It was angel wings <laughs> behind you. You've also produced a book, and in the book, like you're, you're symbolic as an teaching angel. Teaching angels, teaching angels. Yeah. So I want you to kind of talk about like the, the chemistry of like why did you choose that direction? Is it because that maybe that nickname started coming in from the parents because you were dealing with their kids, teaching them, and and essentially leading you to where you are? You're fortifying it more because I've never really given it that much thought, to be honest. I didn't like people calling their kids little booger bears or rug rats and all this. this. These are human beings that have feelings. Don't do that. Be careful what you say and how your face looks while you're talking to your kid. Huh. Understand that everything you're doing, they're looking at and they're, they're innocent and they're, they're vulnerable. They're, they're trusting everything you're doing and yet you're going to say, this is my little booger. You've got to be kidding me. Why don't you call me a little king? And don't overexpand it either, because I think we've gone to the reverse. I think we were not really necessarily, my generation, the baby boomers, weren't particularly the ones that belonged to the minority. Huh. We all overpraised our kids to an extent to where they had false beliefs about themselves. And if you look at them now, a lot of them haven't taken care of this instrument properly. Huh. A lot of them have overpriced what they think they are with reality, mm -hmm. how, how expendable they really could be. They didn't make themselves valuable. They didn't make themselves producers of anything, just that look at me and how good I am, this and that. So be careful. I like to think that all of us truly are angels. Huh. And our kids, most of all, because they kept that purity. We're the ones that teach them out of it. So in doing that, I learned to start loving me more too. Huh. I asked someone close to my family once, did they love themselves? And they sit without taking a breath. No. Wow. Could they tell themselves they love themselves? They said, no. And I said, why? Too much water under the bridge. I look in the mirror and I can tell myself I love myself because I understand how other people feel too. I don't know how, I would defend myself. I, I said this to someone in my family once and you hear it all the time. And you almost said that too. You're more concerned about how their well-being is than your own, right? Correct. How many women would say, you better not touch my kids. You can do whatever you want to me, but you better not touch my kids. I had someone say that to me once. And I said, you know, I'd never want you to be in my corner. I want someone who can't be touched to be the person protecting me. They like themselves that much. Yeah. My sons understand this. No one can touch their father. No one. What do you think would happen if you try to mess with one of my kids? That's where it starts. I like me that much. <laughs> you don't even, yeah. Did you think about my kids? <laughs> Your head would explode just trying to think about doing something bad to my kids. I like me so much. <laughs> that's where I take it. And that's where the onus is. It's not for my kids to become something. It's for me to show them what's possible to become. And through doing that, I don't know what time, I don't know what their journey is. They may not get that much time. But the time they have with me, since I have some control over that, I want them to see what I believe is possible. And I'm not going to push them off the cliff. They have to decide to jump. I think we're saying similar things in different ways, right? Because for me, it's I'm willing to jump off the cliff to lead the way. And hence why I'm saying I'm, not more, I'm more concerned about them, but I'm willing to sacrifice myself and the opportunity to show them that it can be done. Right. There you go. But I'm just saying how people tend to yeah. look at that the thing, and they will, they will do that. No, I'm not. If I think it's over, and it seems cruel, but we've been given that ability. If we're in the water and I see someone close to me going down, 
<laughs> I want to start swimming. Take care of me. I can't help anyone if I'm not here. But I'm not going to run just because it looks dangerous. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I will be there. And they know I'm like that. And I might forget myself by doing that. Because you get tremendous power when you forget about this. That's why the woman can pick the car up of her child. Mm -hmm. No injuries whatsoever afterwards. Because she builds such a strong source inside her that it allows her to do that without any damage to this. <laughs> so I don't know if you say that comes from above or whatever that we have those kind of potentials, but they're fleeting because we haven't been taught to keep them going. So, I mean, with that last statement, yes, talking to the listener, I want you to kind of talk about words of wisdom, insight mm -hmm. to how they can kind of become that, right? Because that's not something that you're born with. Like you said earlier, mm -hmm. you had like the condition of the push and pull, trying to figure things out, and you became as confident as you are by achieving what you've done over the course of 50-something years, mm -hmm. right? So I want you to kind of talk to the listener and let them know how they can not necessarily become you, but become a better version of themselves. I think, first of all, you have to really look inside and be honest with yourself, who you are, who you see yourself as, who do you want to be like? Look at that. And it's a lot of introspection, but not so much that it makes you go crazy, because you can go to any extent. You can go to any extent where it's too much. But start off with the basic thing that you've been given an instrument that you can work with. And this, for the most part, you have control of. You feed it. You groom it. You take care of it. Do those things first and make sure you do them to the best of your ability. And it's not something you do and then you're done. You do it until you can't do it, right? And for me, I hope that's when I take that last breath. That's when I think I'm finished because it's not over until then. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, but I'm going to take care of this while I can. And this is an inside-out proposition. It's not an outside-in because a lot of people like to default to you might say God. I'll just say God because that's a common phrase used in America. But I like to say universal force because I don't think there's any picture or way to understand what it is. But a lot of people like to think, think that that is going to give me something. And I think it did. When my father and mother got together, my father put 300 million potential human beings inside my mother. And I happened to be one of them. I outswam all of them, man. I beat them Oh, I beat, I beat over 300 million other potential human beings to get here. Now tell me I'm not bad. Shoot. But so did you. So did you. Now, once you understand that, I think whoever put us here said, my job's done. The rest is up to you. Because what you are is the universe gift to you. What you become is your gift to the universe. So become something. Become something, produce something, help people, invent something. There's so nothing here that man has touched wasn't at one time somebody's idea. And how much does it cost for an idea? If you wrote down 10 ideas in 10 days, you'd have 100 ideas, right? And I guarantee you, one of them would make you more than you could ever use in this lifetime. So just be that person. Man, you got me praising the Lord. Yes. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? Sure. Well, I think that that kind of goes back to, to your EQ, right? So, I mean, <laughs> ideally, kind of when you talk about your business, because I mean, that, that what you just said kind of stems to what you did with your business. It was mm -hmm. kind of like people looking at something and not realizing the worth of it. <laughs> right. So I want you to talk about like, how did you get into that field 
and obviously being underneath the radar for as long as you were to make that capital. The CT scanners, he's talking about the CT scanner business, that came to me by a friend whose kid I had in my program, and he and his wife were in my aerobic program. Mm. And he worked for one of the medical companies here, and he knew that I was putting together a book on medical devices, because I thought, my wife being a doctor, mm. let me do something that can produce something so I'd have this passive income, mm. right? And it would be in a field, so someone says, what do you do? I say, medical devices. Don't know anything about medical, nothing like that. Yeah. But it gives legitimacy to my wife marrying someone like me then, instead of her just marrying a PE teacher. Now she married somebody who's selling medical equipment. Not much, but you know, come on. Yeah, yeah. I even selling nothing, clotheslines, clothes hangers, which is a lucrative business too. Think about it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, he said, Lance, I understand you're putting together this medical device, because I was telling a few people to get leads and stuff. And he said, are you familiar with CT scanners? I said, I'm not familiar with them, but I know what they are. And he said, well, you know what they do with them in Japan? And I said, no. He said, they throw them away after they've had them for two or three years, and they're still in perfect condition. And I said, okay. And he said, well, there's a used market for them. Huh. Now, I can't do anything because I work in the company, but I can give you all the leads you need, and I'll split the fee of whatever it costs you to do it. But I can't, I have to be behind the scenes. I said, okay, no problem. So for the first year, I went to all these hospitals and told them what I did, and I did it myself. I didn't take anyone with me. And I did it using my Japanese, which wasn't that good. And they listened to me, and everyone was very polite, and they'd take my card and say, fantastic. And I'm sure as soon as I walked out the door, they threw it away. Because what I had on the card was, I'm the president. Huh. And at that time, and even now, it I would say in many industries, you would never think there's a black person involved. How, it could be a president of a company that deals in that area. So there's things like that. And especially when you're limited in what you're doing. So let's say you're domestic in any country. You only know what your society's told you. But we're becoming so global, and this is a whole different time now. So my time is really archaic compared to what we have now. Because look at what we're doing right now. Four cameras. It would have cost us millions of dollars to do what we're doing now, to produce 100%. what we're doing right now. But anyway, in that time, they had never seen black people of any type of real influence unless they were entertainers or sports figures. Then they could believe they could be doing something that could make them wealthy, but just those two fields. So I decided after that, with the advice of someone who's African, who looked at me and saw the potential, said, hey, man, why don't you take your name off as president and say you're marketing director and technician and take someone to, to translate for you. And I let the ego get beside, I mean, put my ego to the side and I had nothing to lose. I just spent money for a whole year, even though it was only half of that I spent because it was being subsidized by the other guy. I went in with someone I trained and this young lady still works with me now today. She owns part of one of my companies. Mm. She's invested in part of it. And that year, me, the guy that, got me involved, and the other two guys we had in the U.S. made a million dollars each profit because I shut up, just said the simple greetings in Japanese, let her do all the talking, act as if I was the the deinstaller, which I was, and we cleaned up. And I did that for 10 years. Six years of that was fantastic. The last four years, it was my stubbornness wouldn't let me leave so easily. I didn't want to make it easy for everybody else because mm -hmm. they came in and they just there was no competition for me with them, especially for people that are from here, the Japanese. So that took it to another. And I said, oh, time to bow out. But I, I kept on scratching at it, you know, because it was, it was good. Yeah. good. How did they go all that money? It was how did they go all that money? 
but I had to give it up after. So, I mean, just think about it. I mean, like you're 71 now. When in your lifespan did that happen? That happened in my late 40s and 50s, early 50s, yeah. And all of that because of you dialed into kids beforehand. I dialed into what? Kids. Keep it simple, stupid, yeah. Dial in to kiss. You kids, say. kids. Oh, kids. I thought you yeah. said kiss. Yeah. Kiss, which no. is keep, keep it, it simple, simple, stupid. stupid. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, kids. Yeah. I mean, because I doubt, that's true. That's that, where the referral came from. And that's what I'm still doing, as a matter of fact. And I'm about to stop doing that because I estimate in all reality, and actually in my own feelings, mm -hmm. I only want to spend another 20 to 30 years in this existence. I don't want to mm -hmm. do more than that. I think... I always tell, I used to tell my staff and even my kids, I'm going to make it to 106. Why? Because I was born October 6th. Mm. So I'll leave it 106. If I get my druthers, that's what I, in good health, I mean, looking like, I mean, feeling and acting this way yeah. and then just having an aneurysm or whatever, just saying, hey, put it in and say goodbye to everybody and go. I, I don't want to, that's how I feel now. Yeah. You know, but maybe something miraculous will come up. Maybe I'll be able to load myself up like in, Altered Carbon. Have you seen that series? Prime? I don't know if it's on Prime. Have you seen Altered Carbon? Yeah. You need to because that is off. I like, they did such a good job with that. Hmm. That is a future I can say. Right. So let's talk about the past and okay. retrospect, right? So you're talking about the future. If you had an opportunity, right? This is a similar question that you asked me. Okay. If you had an opportunity to time travel back in any one of these 71 years that you've been on in this planet, when would you go back to to talk to your younger self. Let's say you have a one hour window. When would you go back to, what would you talk about to become who you are a lot faster? To be honest, I'd be afraid to go back and alter anything because I like where I'm at. And I, that one little push, that one little spin could change everything. Cause it seems a little then, but in time. Correct. Just like in compounding interest. Mm. Me telling myself not to do anything that get the injury in my knee wouldn't I wouldn't be where I'm at. It could alter it. And I like where I'm at. I, I wouldn't, nah, I'd, I'd say I got the pass. I'm not walking through that big circle. I'm not going back in time. I like it here. <laughs> I like it where I'm at. I wouldn't change a thing. That's for all the people I might have made upset, all the people that upset me. Hmm. Everything's happened. I would not be me if it weren't for that pass. Thank you. So with that, right, you uh -huh. wouldn't change anything. Nope. What is the best achievement that you've achieved outside of your kids today? Okay. Oh, my man's got it right on the head because you know I'm going to say, those, those little swimmers, those little boys <laughs> swam. <laughs> What's the best thing? Yeah. Or the greatest achievement. I mean, the obviously. Greatest achievement. Yeah, you've had a dozen, three dozen. It's, you had a lot of them. And to your point, your first one was just being born. So learning that it was, okay, when I work with this firm, when I work with, it really was my best achievement. Working at Unival, when I changed from Unival, mm -hmm. not Unival, from Unival to Investment Service International, owned by a black man, owned by a black man, but all black guys in this one. Mm. And us getting in the room and me with my peer, my family, learning about me. Mm. That lasts a lifetime. Nobody can take that from me. Mm. I don't care who I'm in the room with. Mm. That was my greatest achievement, to be among those guys. Mm. That meant a let's, lot to let's me. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that, all right? Okay. So let's say there was someone that may not have been in that room, someone that you potentially looked up to, someone that you never had opportunity to meet, whether it's they're alive, they're dead in the past, or they're presently alive right now. Who would you like to see? Muhammad spend? Ali. Muhammad Ali. Why? Without a doubt. I cried so much when he lit the torch in the Olympics, mm. when he passed, because I, 
this close. I heard his voice on the telephone of a guy that I knew here that knew him and said, he's my, and spoke to him. And this guy happened to be a billionaire. And he said, Ali's one of my guys, a Jewish guy. And I heard his voice, and he said, you know, how are you doing this? That's the person I wanted to meet. I wanted to meet them. Because he gave me and many other black men their humanity back. We became men again because of him. And he did it publicly in a way that no one else has ever done. He just, he walked his talk and he did it. And I don't care about his imperfections. He risked his life. He couldn't do anything but that. I love that man for that. Hmm. I think that's a, that's a hell of an answer. Because I mean, the other conversation <laughs> that we had, the person who did that for, let's say, my son's generation would be Obama in comparison. I see you. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Because every time he went out, you thought that was going to be the last time. Still to this yeah, day. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, no, there's too many forces protecting that man. No. Yeah. No, and there would be too much retribution if it did happen now. No, I don't think they were anyway. any more than they want to touch the great Elijah Muhammad. Hmm. He died peacefully too. <laughs> no, no, nobody wanted to do that. No, there's too much mess. You don't want to, no, man isn't stupid. And we're all the same. We come from the same origins, first of all. Maybe, maybe not. If the aliens true end up being true. Maybe they planted different seeds. We don't know. But from what we know right now, we all originated from the same location, right? So we were all of the same source. And we've just changed because of the environments and the different, the environments we were in made us change to adapt to that environment. Hmm. Height, weight, complexion, features all changed because of the environments we're in. And we can see that today. You know, but we came from the same original source. And that being the case, the smartest, the dumbest, the largest, the smallest, the fastest, the slowest, all are still there. 100%. And that's a fact. That's a fact. But we don't have anyone really checking that to see if that's really a fact because those of us that have become a certain way have decided to stop that. But we're still from the same source. I mean, I think it's definitely interesting, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. you live in Japan, mm -hmm. right? You married. My wife's Japanese, Japanese right? right? So I want you to kind of like talk about that. I mean, obviously you had a hell of a ride and you're still on the ride right now. <laughs> right. And, and your right. wife, she, 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 she's into medicine, she's a doctor, but in reality, you guys are on two separate hemispheres. Yeah. So how does that work in your household considering that you guys raised four kids that are all in their 30s plus at this and point in time? they're fantastic young men. Yeah. They're fantastic young men. And I contribute a lot of it to their mother hmm. because cause they're men. Hmm. And for a man... The most important person to him really is his mother. She's carried him. And that's why she will take the person responsible for putting him in there mm -hmm. out of this planet if he tries to harm that one mm -hmm. <laughs> without a blink in an eye. She might say she's sorry eh, when, it's, when his body's decapitated and stuff, but that's about it. When I met my wife, it took us a long time. First of all, I never saw her as someone that I'd be married to. I thought I'd marry someone in my own, of my own ethnicity, mm -hmm. is what I really pictured. But it wasn't to be. Marriage isn't something I've had a good image of because of my mother and father separating. So I never had any experience in a family or have an emotional attachment to that form of a relationship, being married. I don't have an attachment to that. And my father didn't show me a lot of women coming in and out. So I never saw any of that either. But I knew he was very much a heterosexual. Mm -hmm. I knew his buddies were who came in. They would allow me to listen to a lot of the stuff they talked about. Mm -hmm. And I liked that. But my father was very conscious about, and he'd been married twice. And I'm sure he had girlfriends. 
but he didn't have anyone he wanted to have come into a home of a teenage boy, you know, that's going through his metamorphosis and stuff or anything. So he didn't want to deal with that, I guess. I don't know, because there's leads or something else. <laughs> anyway, he, he, I think he, he instilled into me a certain thing. He said, if you're going to have kids, you don't have to marry the person you have them by, but you must take care of your kids. Mm. So that kept me controlled because I did not want to have kids by someone I wasn't going to marry because I wanted to make sure my kids were legit and had a good feeling about who they were. I wanted to make sure they had a father, father who was there. And because of the trainings I went through and the, the amount of psychology we had to go through, I realized that the best way for me to make sure my sons always love me is to let them feel, to the best of my ability, I loved their mother. Huh. But if they get old, once they get older, they'll realize maybe it's not the way they think of it. It's not the Disneyland, Cinderella-type love. Huh. It's conditional, huh. as life yeah. is. I mean, you guys, when you got married, 85, 86? 86. Uh, that's a, a long time. So would you yeah. c contribute to her being in your life part of the success that you have Almost right now? definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think it's because she's like me in the respect that she can't be broken. She's not, she can't be, I shouldn't say broken because mm. it sounds like I'm trying to break her. Mm. But I think that's what it appeared to be. And then when I think back on mm. how I am, trying to get her to be the way I want her to be, but that's not going to happen. Oh. And I love that, though. As much as it makes, as mad as it makes me at times, yeah. I love it because I want my sons to have that in them. And they do with a double dose. Oh. But yet be kind. There's some man that said that you cannot truly be kind unless you're a killer. Only a lion can be kind. A lamb cannot they be kind. To be. A, lion, oh. a, a lamb cannot be kind. Because oh. <laughs> it's, it's easy to dominate that. But someone who can... Take you out and decides not to, it's kind. And my sons have that in them. They're so kind, but don't push that button. I've seen it in them and I've told them, I've had to tell them this. Where do you think you got that from? Don't want, you don't want to make me your enemy. The last person on this planet you want to make your enemy huh. is me. I guarantee you that. Huh. And I've had to do that with them before. Let them say, you don't think you got, you got that, you know, honestly. But don't forget where you got it from. Yeah, yeah. So going into to closing, I, I want you to, you're about to be a grandfather for the first time. That's right. right? February, I'll be a grandfather. Thank you so much, Utica. <laughs> you're my girl. You're my daughter. My daughter. And Lonnie, thank you so much. With the potential that your grandkids will see this video mm. 20 years, maybe your great-grandkids 30, 40 years, maybe your great-great-grandkids 60, 70 years, what would you like to leave? message-wise to them? Just know that you are loved. You are loved with everything I can give you. I don't understand this any more than you may. Huh. I don't understand why we have to go through this environment, this, this experience that we go through. But the fact that you're listening to me means that you made it to go, you, you wanted to go through it again, so you're going through it. But just do it with love of yourself huh. first and make that an inside-outside preposition and then those around you. You have to share it. You cannot keep it alone or you'll implode. Huh. I don't care how powerful, how wise, whatever. You've got to share that among all of the people like yourself. You have to. And that's what I did with. Yeah. Well, you, you don't want to let them know about that they made it past the 300 million? <laughs> and I got 300 million. You know what I mean? 
Well, I definitely appreciate it. I think th this is definitely a special episode. First of all, yeah. it's an episode that we're in person. That's right. We're in Japan. That's right. And just having tell, hearing your story from, from your point of view mm. and the fact that your age is like, you're really 25 years old. Like, if you think about it as far as, like, your, your, your tenacity, mm. like, I, I could totally see you living to 106, without a doubt, hands down. So I definitely appreciate you. I appreciate you coming into our lives, and, and we look forward to staying connected. Thank you so much. And we will stay connected. Thank definitely. you so much. S.A. Grant, yes. over and out. Thank you for tuning in to another empowering episode of Boss Uncaged, where we've explored the ins and outs of entrepreneurship, harnessed the power of digital marketing, and embraced the journey of building impactful brands. As we wrap up this episode, I want to express my deepest gratitude to our incredible guests, listeners, and the entire Boss Uncaged community. Your dedication to unlocking your potential and conquering the business realm has made this podcast a dynamic hub of inspiration and knowledge. Throughout the Boss Uncaged journey, we've delved into exclusive interviews, shared strategies, and celebrated success stories from founders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and executives. It's been a roller coaster of insights, lessons, and triumphs, and I hope you found valuable takeaways to apply in your own entrepreneurial endeavors. Whether we've tackled challenges together, explored the vast landscape of diverse media platforms, or uncovered the secrets to dominating in business, your commitment to the Boss Uncaged spirit has been truly inspiring. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, like leave a positive five-star review and share the Boss Uncaged podcast to continue elevating the business game. The Boss Spirit runs free and we're always ready to amplify your entrepreneurial journey with extra resources at bossuncaged.com. Before we sign off, remember that Boss Uncaged is more than just a podcast. It's the heartbeat of the Boss Uncaged educational network and omni-media. It's a vision brought to life by the Uncaged Boss in all of us. Thank you for being part of this incredible ride. Stay hungry, stay focused, and keep conquering the business realm. Subscribe, like, and share now to keep the Boss Uncaged spirit alive. Boss Uncaged.